turning your Bibles to John chapter 3. We're jumping into a new series for the, for the duration of Lent. For those of you who don't know, we are in the season of Lent, which follows Jesus' 40-day journey as the Bible says he set his face toward Jerusalem. And so the origins of Lent, to me, are pretty interesting. The early church felt like it was important that every person who wanted to join the community of faith be baptized. They didn't have a sinner's prayer. They didn't have a personal faith. They had a a personal and communal faith that was expressed through baptism. And in order to be baptized, you had to be catechized, and you had to fast. And so they would encourage converts, if you wanted to convert to Christianity, you couldn't just pray a prayer. You had to enter into a season of fasting, and then you were baptized. And, it, and this is like so typical of the early church, um, they say. And when you baptize new converts, make sure you baptize them in running water. But if no running water is available, use still water. <laughs> it's like, are there any other kinds of water? I'm not really sure. But the point was that they would bring people who were converted to the faith through a period of fasting and where they would really consecrate themselves and examine their hearts and examine their motives. And you also have to understand that the early church was persecuted and marginalized, so the commitment to join the followers of the way was a, maybe a bigger deal. It would be more similar to following Jesus in a place like Pakistan today. It was, uh, it was a major life change that involved a massive amount of sacrifice, and it was good to examine your heart and make sure you were ready for that. So then what the early church did was they said, well, all these people are getting converted and all these people want to be baptized, so why don't we group all the fasting together in the 40-day period before Easter Sunday, and then we'll do all the baptisms on Easter Sunday. And that was the beginning of the observance of Lent, where we follow Jesus on his way to death and into resurrection life. And then, of course, the early church would celebrate this death-to-life transformation by baptizing a bunch of converts, and then everybody would eat and have a feast, and it would be amazing. And so we observe Lent as a community because we want to understand the death and the resurrection of Christ in a new and deeper way. It's not something that you ever... Uh, it's not a box that you check off your to-do list, like, oh, okay, I get it now. I fully understand what Jesus did for me. That will never happen. There's always more to the mystery. There's always greater depth to be discovered. And consecrating ourselves in the period of Lent and maybe choosing to fast. Some people abstain from something that they love. Some people, uh, like our Catholic brothers and sisters, they abstain from meat, except for Fridays, I believe where they can have fish. I may be getting this wrong. I'm not Catholic. I'm universally Catholic, but I I don't know the fullness of the Catholic tradition. Some people fast all food entirely during Lent. It's, uh, It's different for everyone. And then some people, they choose to break their fast every Sunday through the period of Lent because the celebration of the resurrection on Sunday is too important even in the middle of Lent. And then some people choose to fast even through the Sunday. Those are the extra spiritual ones. Um... But we observe Lent because we want to appreciate, we want to understand and appreciate what Christ has done for us. And it has to be experiential. It can't just be conceptual. It has to be something that we participate in with our bodies, not just with our minds, okay? And sometimes what happens is is we talk and uh, we listen a lot and we end up getting fed on ideas, but we never experience life transformation because we don't change our practices, right? It's like... um, 
It's like when I want to get in shape, I watch a lot of YouTube videos on diet and exercise, and I feel like I'm well on my way. (laughs) Do you understand what I'm saying? And we don't want to do that. We don't want to be people of talk. We want to be people of action. We want to be people who participate in what Jesus is doing. And so in this series, which we're calling Interrogating Jesus, we're simply examining in the gospel readings through the, series, through, through the gospel readings of Lent, in every story, someone asks Jesus a question. And the question reveals something deeper. There's the question, but then there's the question behind the question. And that's, generally speaking, always what happens when we interact with God. When we talk with Jesus, sometimes we have questions that are on our heart, but those questions are actually hiding other questions. And one of the things that happens as Jesus turns toward Jerusalem and he sets his face toward the sacrifice he knows he must make, one of the things that happens is there's kind of a winnowing. There's a funneling effect Those that are only in the movement for the fun of it, those that are along for the ride, they don't stick it out. In fact, pretty much nobody sticks it out by the end. Even the disciples, like Peter, who swore, I will never leave you or forsake you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, "Eh, your heart's in the right place, (laughs) but you are also going to deny me. Even the people who were the nearest and dearest to Jesus weren't actually able to join him all the way through this incredible journey, this incredible sacrifice. But Jesus invites us to take up our cross and follow him. That does not mean we must sacrifice for our own redemption. Okay? I want you to understand that very clearly. When Jesus invites us to take up our cross and follow him, he is not saying you must die for the sake of your own redemption. That's silly. Okay? But why that verse matters to us so much in the season of Lent is we know that we must join Jesus in death and resurrection in order for this abundant life to be ours. And so my first question that we take from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, is the question Nicodemus asks. He says, can a man be born again? Let's read this together. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. This is one of the most famous dialogues in the Bible. Perhaps the most famous verse in all Scripture is John 3, 16, which we will read in a minute. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And the idea of being born again has become a very important idea, especially to the North American evangelical church. Now, I want to examine what it means to be born again this morning, but I'm not, I'm not trying to do it comprehensively. What I say about being born again is not the only and most definitive thing you can say about being born again. 
But I think sometimes that the phrase to be born again has become so crystallized in our culture that it means some things that it's not supposed to mean and then other things that have just kind of become routine and trivial and, and kind of buried deep into the subconscious of our Christian life. Brother, are you born again? Basically what it means to many of us is, are you on my team? Did you pray the prayer that I prayed? Do you agree with the things I agree with? And can I see you in heaven one day after we're both dead? Okay, that's culturally speaking what it means. But I'd like to get back to the question that Nicodemus asks and the way Jesus answers it. Because what I've discovered is that this passage is not just relevant for the beginning of my Christian faith. It's actually more relevant toward the end of my Christian faith. This question doesn't just speak to how my journey with Jesus begins. It actually speaks to how I am being saved long after all of this is fresh and new and different to me. Nicodemus appears only in the Gospel of John, and he appears three times. What I love about the Gospels is that there are these subplots. You can follow a particular character, and they'll show up here, and then they'll show up here, and then they'll show up here, and it's like there's this backstory that's happening behind the scenes. And if you just pick up on it, you can see transformation is happening through Jesus and all around Jesus and in the lives of people who have come into contact with Jesus. It's kind of like one of my favorite shows, Community. Uh, In the show Community, it's like this half-hour comedy, but uh, there's a cast of characters. It's an ensemble show. And one of the characters in the show, he's not in one of the episodes. But it turned out that he actually was in the episode, but he was only in the background with the extras. And if you watch the episode over again, you can see that he's not in the show because he uh, meets another student at this community college who's pregnant, and then she goes into labor, and he ends up delivering the baby, but it's all in the background of the episode. And then after the credits roll, they're like, hey, we didn't see you this whole time. Where were you? He's like, or what happened? He's like, not much. (laughs) That's kind of what happens with Nicodemus. There's a backstory here. He shows up at the beginning... He's being introduced to Jesus' world the way the reader of the Gospel of John is being introduced to Jesus' world. And by the end of the story, he's been transformed. He's been born again. But he doesn't start there. He starts with a question, can a man be born again? Now, why would he ask this question? Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night as a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, he represents the old religious order. He represents the very best and brightest of those who claim to carry the tradition of the Torah, the Jewish faith. Church tradition teaches that he's an old man. He's seasoned. He's experienced. So he comes to Jesus likely at night because he's too ashamed to come to Jesus in the daytime. He's investigating and interrogating this man, this rabbi. And he wants to know if his claims are legitimate. And when he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, he starts with a compliment. He says, Jesus, we know that you must have come from God because no one can do the signs and wonders that you're doing unless God is with him. And Jesus kind of brushes this compliment aside and he says, truly I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. You can't even see or experience or taste this world that I'm bringing people into. 
And Nicodemus says, of course, the famous question, can a man be born again? The Greek word for being born again can also be translated as being born from above or beginning life from the start or taking it from the top. If you've ever seen an orchestra or a jazz band play, sometimes the conductor or the band leader will say, let's take it again from the top. Let's return to the beginning. But the word can also mean again, as in repeating. So there's a translation, there's an interesting thing about translation here. When, when Jesus says, you must be born again, he's either meaning being born again, as in literally going back into the womb and having another birth, or Jesus could be saying, you must be born from above. You must take it again from the top. You must return to the starting point. And Nicodemus interprets it literally. He says, be born again. Is a man supposed to crawl back into his mother's womb and be born again? He's skeptical. He's doubting. He's wondering what Jesus means. But what's the question behind the question? Remember, in life there's the thing, and then there's the thing behind the thing. And the thing behind the thing is always more important than the thing. If you've ever been in an argument with a loved one or a spouse, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because they're saying things, and you're saying things, and your things and their things are fighting. But in the thing behind the thing, after everybody's calmed down and maybe made up, you find out that actually it was my insecurity that caused me to say this. And actually it was my doubt that caused you to say that. And what we discover is life is actually happening under the surface. What's happening under the surface of Nicodemus's question, can a man be born again? What is he really wondering? What is he really after? He's saying, I have been around the block. I have experienced some of life, but not all of life. I know, I, I know a little bit of something about God's world, but not enough. And I'm wondering, is it really possible for me to return to innocence? Is it really possible for me to be restored to my first love? Is it really possible for me to move past the sins and the mistakes in my history? Is it really possible for me to overcome my brokenness and my cynicism? Because I'm not a young man, Jesus. I'm an old man. I've lived life. I've experienced things. And there are some scars that did not heal right. There's some brokenness in my heart that I just carry with me. So what's the question behind the question? What's Nicodemus really after? He wants to know if regeneration is actually possible. We live in a world that's obsessed with our return to innocence. Here's an example. Everywhere you look especially if it's inspirational memes on Instagram and Facebook, you will find someone that's talking about returning, uh, restoring your inner child 
or listening to the voice of your inner child. Has anyone ever heard of this concept? The inner child concept? You got a kid, he's like kicking and punching around in there and he's, he's wanting to get out, right? And what is behind this idea is the concept that we've lost our way somehow. We've lost our innocence. We've lost the freedom that came with being a child. And this happens to us sometimes. This happens to us because we have a concept of life that's kind of naive. It's naive and it's also extremely rigid. We're right and we know we're right and we feel free because we're right. And so therefore we don't really have to think about things or deal with problems because we have a concept of the world that works a certain way and everything fits into these narrow parameters. And therefore inside this world that we've created for ourselves, we feel free and happy, and life goes really well for us. And you can see this in all sorts of ideologies. You can see this at both, at all major political parties' rallies. You see this like crazy. There's these, there's these people that it's like, it's their sports team, right? They wear their, their political party's colors. They sometimes even hold like little flags and hats and stuff like that, right? And it's like, we're winning and the other guys are losing and we're right and the other guys are wrong and this is the way the world works. We've figured it out, right? Psychologically speaking, we call this ideological possession, right? It's the freedom that comes from going, I know I'm right, I've got a way the world works, and everything fits into my predetermined boxes, right? This is very childlike, but not in a positive sense. It's childlike in the way that my son thinks I'm the strongest guy in the universe. He doesn't know better. <laughs> he doesn't know that his dad is kind of out of shape and definitely tired in the evenings, right? He doesn't know that his dad will throw out his back just by trying to move the couch two inches. <laughs> to me, I know my limitations, but to him, I'm Superman. And that's the way the world works for this kind of childlikeness. That's the way the world works in this, what, what some call the first naivete, meaning you have a way that you're going through life, and this is the way it works, and this is the way everything fits together. And because you figured it all out, you feel happy. You feel free. If anyone comes along with a question, you say, there's no need to question. You're not supposed to question. The system works. I figured it out. Don't damage my system. And then what happens? Real life happens. Right? Has this happened to anyone else yet? Real life hits you. You have all of the answers and you have no need for questions. And then you hit real life square in the nose and you realize my system doesn't work. My box isn't big enough. I thought all of the other people were bad and all of my people were good. I thought all the people on my team were right and all the other people were wrong. And suddenly my whole system is falling apart. So in the first stage of life, all you have is answers, right? <laughs> I was one of them, so I can make this joke. The only people who figured out the whole Bible is recently graduated Bible college students. They're the only ones who have all the answers because they just finished and they're like, I know everything, right? 
And I'm, I'm guilty of this. I was one of them, right? I came back from Bible college and I said, Dad, I've got some ideas. I've got some thoughts. He was gracious with me. He's like, yeah, okay, cool, right? Because you figured everything out. But then real life hits you and what you knew of life seems to fall apart. And what are you left with? You're left with questions. You're left with doubts. You're left with discouragement. You're left with cynicism. And this part of life feels very troubling, very disconcerting. And it feels like the destruction of everything you built yourself upon. So what's happening to Nicodemus? Nicodemus is in the second half of life that has no solid answers and only huge questions. He's an old man who's part of an old religion who's seeing a new thing and he knows God has something to do with it, but he doesn't understand it. And he comes at night because he's too ashamed to be seen in the day. And what is he really asking? Is it possible for me to go back to the way it was? Before my world fell apart, before all I had was questions and doubts and cynicism. I'll be honest with you, in this season of Lent, this question maybe resonates with me more than any other because when you're in the ministry, you, you tend to hit the wall of real life over and over and over again. You have people that come and go, which is fine. Sometimes people are called to come and sometimes people are called to go. But then you have people that come and promise their life to you. You have people who come and who really give their heart to you. And then you have people who hurt you. You have people who betray their word. You have people who take the thing that you're trying to create and they accidentally step on it on their way out the door. And that's incredibly discouraging. If there's anyone I relate to in the Bible, it's Nicodemus because I understand so clearly how unless something happens to you, life will eventually make you cynical. Life will eventually ruin all your, question, ruin all your answers and leave you with only questions and make you feel so uncertain about what it is I'm actually doing with my life. What, it, what, it, what am I actually believing? Right? So Nicodemus asks Jesus this question, and Jesus is so gracious while he's being confronted. Jesus says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered him, or said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? We talked about this several weeks ago. When Jesus says in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, another way of, of of paraphrasing that is, blessed are the poor at being spiritual. Those who are good at being spiritual have a way of rationalizing and theologizing their cynicism. Right? So it's like, for example, um, you pray to get healed and you don't get healed. 
So then you come up with a reason for why you're not healed. Or some loving person comes along and gives you the reason why you're not healed. Right? Has that ever happened to you? Well, you just don't have enough faith, brother. You just got to believe. Well, thank you. You've deeply encouraged me. So what ends up happening is, is the people who have the most experience end up building the best case for why life can't get any better. Why there's no way to return to innocence. And Jesus, Jesus says to him, you're the teacher, you're the leader, you, you of all people are the one others are looking to to understand this, and yet you don't. But those who are born of the Spirit are kind of like the wind. Now, he doesn't mean like flighty and breezy, okay? <laughs> Woo! I like the wind, man! Just take it easy. That's not exactly what he's saying. Although, if you're like that, God bless you, okay? I'm not offended by you. What, what Jesus is not saying is that those who are born of the Spirit are shallow and temperamental and, um, and inconsistent. That's not what he's saying. Okay? What Jesus is saying when he compares those who are born of the Spirit to the wind is he's saying those who have returned to childlikeness, those who have been regenerated by the Spirit, have been born again by the Spirit of God, return to an innocence of heart where they don't have to understand everything. They don't have to figure everything out. They don't have to have an answer for every question. But they are fully devoted to enjoying the present. And they move with the Spirit as the Spirit moves, not knowing where it's coming from or where it's going, but because they are attuned, they are aware of the way God's world actually works. In the first stage of life, all you have is answers and you don't want any questions. In the second stage of life, all you have is questions and you don't get any answers. In the third stage of life, when you're born again, you don't need to answer all the questions. You just need to move with the wind. In Hebrew, the same word for breath and spirit, ruah, applies to both things. When in the Old Testament, when, when a person dies, it will say that their, their ruah, their breath departed, their spirit departed from them. When Jesus says, those who are born of the spirit are like the wind, you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, you hear the sound of it. So too is everyone who was born of the spirit. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying those who are born, who return, who are regenerated to innocence, those are the ones who are so attentive to God moving in and around them that they also feel the same spirit, the same wind, the same breath within them. What has happened inside of them has made them attentive to God all around them. And they might still have questions. And they might still lack answers, but they don't need to have every question answered. They don't need to have a box anymore. (laughs) 
See, sometimes we've made being born again into a new label, into a new category, into a new grouping. And in this way, again, I'm not saying this is the only way to look at being born again, okay? But we live in a world where everybody's trying to convert everybody else to something. And even atheists and agnostics are trying to convert people to atheism and agnosticism. (laughs) I don't believe anything and you shouldn't either. Okay. Political parties are trying to recruit new voters. Enlightened spiritualists and new age transcendentalists are trying to get people to be more inclusive of everybody. Everybody's got an agenda for everybody else. But Jesus says those who are born of the Spirit are just attentive to the wind. If, if, born again, if being born again is where you're converted, I believe being born again is being converted to the end of conversion. And instead, discovering regeneration again and again and again within you because we serve a God who brings us back to our original image and likeness, to our original design as his children, and he restores us to an innocence that we could not reclaim on our own. The reason why you can't get in touch with your inner child is probably because your inner child is dead. But I promise you, God can resurrect him. We live in a world that doesn't want to talk about sin, and that's deeply unfortunate. Because sin, the word sin, hamartia, means to miss the mark. And if you have no way to miss the mark, then there is no mark in the first place. If you can't fall short of the standard, you can't be forgiven for missing it. So we live in a world where everyone's trying to be accepting of everything, but also where everyone has an agenda for one another. And what's happening? Everybody's just trying to build a better box to put everything in. And some people are deeply skeptical and cynical because life has worn them down. And some people are still really, really religious about whatever system they're trying to peddle on you. (laughs) Socialism, free market capitalism, all you need is loveism, whatever it is, they're trying to make you fit into their agenda. And then other people are like, I actually don't know anything about life. I don't really know what's going on. And Jesus comes into the middle of this with Nicodemus, who's discouraged, who's weary, who's worn down from the old system, and says, you must be born again. Why? Because Nicodemus is far too discouraged and cynical to ever believe that he could return to the innocence he once lost. And sometimes I feel that way too. Sometimes I feel like it's impossible for me to go back to the way it was when I first was born again. I remember jumping off the platform, I've told the story here many times, feeling like my chest was full of light, and I longed to go back to that place. And what I'm here to tell you is that we serve a God who wants us to be born again, again, and again, and again. We serve a God who really does regenerate us. You are not bound by the limitations of your past. You are not bound by the brokenness of your system. If you think you had it all figured out and then you found out that you didn't have it all figured out, the goal is not to figure it all out again. The goal is to be attentive to the wind. 
And this only happens by a moving of the Spirit where God refreshes your heart and restores you to the image and likeness that he first had for you in the beginning. This is the other reason why it's so much deeper than just getting in touch with your inner child. You know why? Because most of your brokenness came from when you were a child. People are like, I need to get in touch with my inner child. Well, your inner child is still hurting. Your inner child is still suffering from pains and abuses and wounds that happened to you long before you could figure everything out. And I'm not saying that, should, that stuff should be ignored. By all means, work through the pain of your past, the pain of your childhood. But remember that you serve a God who by the breath of his spirit can actually restore you, can transform you fundamentally in your very being. I'll close with this. Turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. I've been criticized for, uh, for not being very systematic in my teaching. And uh, here's another example of that. This is going to feel like whiplash. <laughs> Habakkuk chapter 3 I'm going to read from verse 17. Again, I'd like to tell you that I've figured this whole thing out. And maybe just the way I'm talking makes it sound that way. But I really haven't. This is where I'm living right now. And it's very vulnerable for me because I normally like to put some miles between what I'm experiencing and what I'm talking about. Not because I don't want to be vulnerable, but because it's not really fair to teach something before you've really learned it. Does that make sense? Like I wouldn't get up here and be like, here's your first lesson in jujitsu. Okay, ready? Kick. I don't know anything about jujitsu, right? So I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to teach something I haven't learned myself, right? So this part feels a bit awkward because this is literally where I'm at right now. I face setbacks and discouragements that have caused me to rethink the fundamental way I relate to my faith. I have had relationships with people that have gone sideways, and I'd like to tell you that I've been able to move on, and I'm, I'm actually working through it still. There are people I'm in the process of forgiving. So I'd like to tell you, man, I'm just the most childlike person in the room. But I need to be born again. And I just want to give you a verse that's become a life promise. (laughs) One evening I was very discouraged. (laughs) And I said to my wife, I said, I don't, it was after something had happened and I won't go into it, but I felt very discouraged. And I said, you know what, babe, I don't even know what the point of this is. I don't know what the point of it is, and I I don't know if I want to continue. (laughs) And she said, I'm going to read something. (laughs) And I'm so glad it was the scriptures (laughs) and not some Instagram meme. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) If it was from Instagram, I'm sure it would have been good. But this was better. This has been... um, food for my soul, and I hope it is for you too. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food. 
Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet, and he makes me walk on my high places. Even if life doesn't make sense to you, even if you're carrying brokenness from your past, even if you've faced contradiction that has broken your system and left you with a bit of a mess and you feel like you have more questions than answers, even if you feel cynical about some things that you know you shouldn't be cynical about, God promises that rebirth is possible, that you can begin again from his image and likeness. You can be restored and regenerated, not to your beginning, but to his beginning. Not to the innocence of your childhood, but to the innocence of his. Because God is the most childlike being in the universe. He literally doesn't age. Have you thought about this? He's the same from beginning to end. He's not an old gray man, (laughs) right? He's as wise as one, but he's as fun as a baby. He looks at you with eyes of innocence because he hasn't forgotten your original design. And your life is not stuck in the limitations of your past. And your future is not about constructing a better version of reality where you answer all the questions. And you have all the facts straight. Even if your life is in the middle of a contradiction where you don't have any cattle in your stalls or fruit on your vines, even if you feel incredibly barren, God promises to put a kind of regeneration in you that makes you leap like a deer And as the message says, stand on top of the mountains. You can be born again, again.